talking about the problem of pain. Last week, we ended up with the issue. We've been talking about a couple of different things. It's all lumped under pain and suffering. But the reality is we've discovered, I hope, there's a difference between, between uh, suffering and evil. Is that right? Okay, so and that's an important one because uh, just because something is hurtful emotionally or physically or spiritually even doesn't mean it's evil, okay? What makes something evil is, anybody remember what makes something, the distinction between evil and just suffering? And I'm not, I'm not, by the way, I'm not minimizing suffering. I'm just saying there's a distinction. How about if we wait till this is all squared away and then we'll get started? Sorry? Intention, right? So if a person, my first question here, if you uh, were looking at it, is something about a tree falling on the ground. I, didn't look, I have, don't have it in front of me. If a tree falls on a person and kills them, is that evil? Is it evil? No. no. If a person, if uh, Father Gritter gets a saw and chops the tree down like on a Bugs Bunny cartoon or something and kills somebody intentionally with it, is that evil? Yes. Yeah, okay. So it's a, that's a very, very big, important thing. Because, for example, you will have people who get sick and you'll get people who, you will meet people that die in car accidents, have family members that die in car accidents or that all sorts of, suffering that occurs in this life. We're going to get to this today a little bit in the fall, but just because something is suffering does not mean it's evil. I'm not saying it's not suffering, which is bad. Well, not some, it's bad in its effect of how it makes us feel, but there's an important distinction between evil and suffering. And I hope if that's one thing you get, because that will actually solve a lot of the problem that people have with uh, this idea of God causing, causing bad. Something wrong? Okay. So, Today, so then the question becomes, where does human evil come from? Where does it come from? It comes from ourselves, right? It comes from the human, human beings misusing the will that God has given them. We've also discovered in the past couple of weeks that God has given us the ability to make decisions, right? Free will. He has to. If his desire is for us to love him, he has to allow us what? Not to. So if he desires us to live in a certain way, in a certain ethic, and treat people with kindness and respect, and all those sorts of things, he also has to allow us not to, by definition. It's not a limitation of his omnipotence. It is just a logical necessity. Okay? Is that clear? Today we're going to talk about the fall. And um, <clears throat> as I said before, evil is suffering with intention behind it. Now, there are only uh, two kinds of beings that can do that, can have, can have suffering with evil intention. Anybody know what the first be type of being that might, that might do that? You <laughs> and me, human beings. There's a second type of being, created being, that also has will, and that is angels, okay? And angels are not cute little fuzzy things in the sky. Angels are, if you look at the biblical record anyway, what the Bible says about them, angels are actually quite terrifying. Not in that they're like hairy with big teeth kind of terrifying, but uh, going back to Lewis's discussion of the numinous, right? It's when you confront an angel, the supernatural, it's, it just blows the matrix. It just overwhelms your ability to make sense of what's going on. So the point being, angels and human beings share a common characteristic, and that is both angels and human beings have the ability to, to, to do evil. Does that make sense? Yes? 
okay? So an angel can make a decision to sin, and a human being can make a decision to sin. When this gets a little bit heady, and if it doesn't make any sense, don't worry about it. But if you've ever wondered why angels, okay, so demons, devils, which Christ claims are real, and I believe them because, well, I believe them because for lots of reasons, but scripture primarily, uh, <clears throat> What scripture says is that there were angels and that some of those angels decided to walk away from God, to, turn, to exercise their free will in a manner inconsistent with God's desires for them, just like you and I. Make sense? Okay. Jesus says he saw Satan falling from the sky. And it's pretty nebulous, but that's where a lot of the church fathers get this idea of the, the demonic uh, fall occurring before the human fall. Okay, I'll get to the human fall in a second. But the idea here is that an angel, angels are created by God good, like we are. Created in, we're made in God's image, which angels are not. If you want a really great book about this, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters is phenomenal. I love that book. Uh, anyway, so here's an interesting thing, thing to consider. People say, well, how come demons can't just repent? You ever wonder that? Never did? There's a good reason why. There's a one big distinct difference, difference between you and angelic beings is that you and I inhabit time. This is incidentally why once you're dead, you're either in or out. Here's why. When you are in time, which you and I are currently, right? We are in time. Being in time means that you can change by definition. So once you are atemporal outside of time, if, you, if, I, if I lose you, don't sweat it, but just as an intellectual thing, to, it's consistent and it hangs together. If you are outside of time, atemporal, meaning that you're, you don't inhabit time, you just are a being, then your decisions, whatever, you can't possibly change your mind. And whenever you make a decision, for example, as an angel, you would know the full consequence of that decision. Does that make sense? Yes? So the reason that you and I, we can go, God, I can't believe I did that last night, <laughs> right? Or I can't believe I said that to my wife or my husband, or I can't believe I did X, I can't believe I, well, I won't go there. Uh, <clears throat> I can't believe this, I did this. I, I want to make a change. I didn't realize that was going to occur, or I, maybe I thought it might, but I wasn't sure. If you're atemporal, like a demon, would, an angel would be, your decisions would have immediate and complete consequence because you'd already, you're not, you can't change. If that's too heady for you, don't sweat it. But the idea being that once you are outside of time, i.e. an angel, an, a created being, but outside of time, they don't age. Or once you're dead, you are outside of time, right? No longer aging. Um, that is why once you are either an angel that's fallen or a human being who dies re rejecting the gospel, that's it. Once you are atemporal, you can no longer change, repent. Is that clear? Okay. All right. So anyway... What is the source of human evil? Um, the, the doctrine of the fall. Let me, I want to talk, this is actually a very, very important doctrine. We're going to get to this in a minute. Um, that God made human, God made man and women, made humanity, and God, everything that God created, he said, God created it in Genesis chapter 2, and God said that it was what? Good, right? And not only that, not only are, is humanity created good, we're created in God's image, which is a super profound 
idea. No other ancient religion ever even would consider the idea that human beings were made in the image of God. That's insane. Human beings were, were either sex partners or food for the gods of the ancient Near East, right? They, weren't, they were toys for the, for the gods. To say that God, the creator of the universe, created you and I in his image is anthropologically astounding. Is that, make, is that clear? So the Bible claims... That, the, that, man is made in, that man is made in the image of God, meaning that we have, I would argue, that what, the, what that means is that we have an innate sense that God is real and he's present. We might not always understand what that means, and a lot of people don't understand what that means, but human beings throughout history, anthropologically you can prove this, we talked about this in chapter one, human beings all believe that there's a God, right? Why? Because we were made in his image, Okay? what the Bible claims is the answer. And so what happens is God creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, which actually, incidentally, um, was a real place uh, somewhere in modern-day Iraq. If you look it up, it actually gives you that the borders of Eden were the Tigris, Euphrates, and a third river named the Pishon, which we don't know what that, where that was. But for sake of argument, somewhere, somewhere in modern Iraq, the Garden of Eden was there, actually very fertile land, I guess, at one point. And so God created Adam and Eve to exist in the Garden of Eden with him. Now, most people dismiss that as a fairy tale. It's not. We also know, genetically, that all of human, humanity has a common female ancestor that comes out of, do you know where that woman comes out of? Africa. Really? Yeah. So the idea being, people have dismissed Eden as a, as a metaphor or, um, and again, this this is another question for another day, but what the Bible claims is that God created you and I for a fundamentally different existence than we inhabit now. Is that clear? So, for example, the Garden of Eden was where, Adam and Eve, where God created Adam and Eve to live with him in a relationship like I have with you right now. You can communicate directly. There's no suffering. There's no need. There's no evil. There's no death. All that stuff does not exist the way that God intended humans to live. Is that clear? We can go back and read Genesis 2 if you want, but this should not be brand new, should not be news to you. Um, and so as a result, God allowed, created them in the Garden of Eden. Now here's the, here's the problem, right? And I hope you see the obvious question here. Uh, if God creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to live with him, right? And they've also got free will, what is the great big possibility that could occur? That they would reject his will, right? It's the, it is the risk God, Lewis says, uh, uh, he says on page 65, was it better for God to create than not? That is a question I have already declined. Since I believe God to be good, yes, I am sure that if the question has a meaning, the answer must be yes. Is that clear? So the idea is, could God have, could, you know, did God, uh, was it better for God to create than not create? And it's kind of a stupid question because if there is a God in the first place, he's God and he knows better than we do to begin with. So, but the idea being that if God created Adam and Eve to live with him in the Garden of Eden and they decided to walk away from him, which they did, we call that event what? The fall. And if you go back and look at it, um, when, God, when the serpent, which I would argue is one of these fallen angels that occurred some part in... Actually, at the moment, if you want to, something to think about, when the angelic fall would have occurred would have been at the, at the very moment of creation. 
at the, if you want to call it the Big Bang or whatever you want to call it, again, it's open for debate, but the, the angelic fall would have occurred at the immediate moment of creation. Why? Because angels don't inhabit time. So as soon as, the creation, as soon as creation occurs, boom, that would have been the fall, the angelic fall. This is a theory. And then Jesus says he saw Satan falling from the sky. So I would argue, and the church fathers would argue, that this serpent we find in the Garden of Eden is one of these fallen angels. Okay? Is that clear? Sort of? So God creates Adam and Eve to live in the garden. The angel, this serpent, comes to Eve and tempts her to eat the apple. You ever, you know, we think of it as an apple. The word actually in the Greek is the word karpa, and it doesn't mean apple, it means fruit. Uh, the reason that they, they, the, the apple idea has come along through history is because the word for apple in, um, in Latin is the word malice, isn't it? Yeah, and the word malice sounds a lot like mal, evil. So that's where this idea of it being an apple comes from. But the text actually says a fruit, a fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, listen to what the devil says. If you, the, 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 the temptation that the devil gives to Eve and then to Adam, because he buys into it, is if you eat this fruit of the knowledge, listen to what he says, of the knowledge of good and evil, which they don't yet know. They are blissfully ignorant, right? They have, it's kind of like, you know, many of you have kids or grandkids. You know, you don't let them watch. You're, you're selective in what you expose them to, right? You don't let them watch. You get the idea. God was trying to restrain and protect Adam and, evil from this, Adam and Eve from this evil. And that Satan says to, to Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will have, listen to what he says, the knowledge of good and evil. And you will, she actually says, you will be like God having knowledge of good and evil. You see it? So what is Adam and Eve, what do they do? They take the bait. They go for it. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I dismissed all this stuff as just fairy tale and nonsense. Uh, I don't anymore because it explains everything. And so when you get, when the idea is after the fall, it says their eyes were opened, meaning they now could see evil. And at that moment, the human species became corrupted. That's what we call the fall. Let me stop there. Any questions? <coughs> Any questions? Nothing? Okay. Um, here's, a, here's one. Uh, Lewis says in the book, here's an obvious objection. People say, well, wait a minute, Father. Uh, if God saw the fall coming, which he clearly would have seen was a, certainly a possibility, if God saw the fall coming, why didn't he just stop it? Right? People say that. Well, okay, maybe you stopped the first one, <laughs> but then, then what? I mean, human beings are... Human beings are notoriously, as you and I can certainly claim in my own heart, uh, we are always trying to be our own boss and trying to call the shots. So even if, even if God had prevented the first fall, it would have been, um, Lewis says this on page 66, it would have been possible for God to remove by miracle the results of the first sin ever committed by human beings. But this would not have been much good unless he was prepared to remove the result of the second sin and the third sin and the fourth sin, i.e. Remo remove human free will. It gets back to the question of God's design. Is this clear? Okay, now, the fall. What does that mean? The fall does a couple of things. The fall introduces into Adam and Eve, what happens is they become, if you know the story, um, the first thing that they do is they cover themselves. God is actually walking through the Garden of Eden, and he calls to Adam, and Adam is 
covered himself with a fig leaf or whatever. He's covered. And, and God, one of the most profound, I think, statements in the entire Bible is this. Because it's so pastorally sensitive and like God being like, oh gosh, you did it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I told you don't touch the shiny red button and you did it anyway. He says, um, he said, Adam, he says, Adam, and he calls him and he says, where are you? He says, I hid myself. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you ever notice that? It is a wonderful little, uh, like God, like, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it. I knew it. It's kind of like when, you're, when your kids come, come across something that you wish they hadn't, and they see it, and you're like, oh, man, who told you about that? That's the problem. Okay? Um, so then, anyway, so, the, the, so not, only is, not only is the fall corrupt human, human nature, but the, what the fall also brings about destruction in the created order. For example, in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 24, which I'm going to read you, uh, not only are Adam and Eve inheritors of the fall, and now they are, like you and I are, um, subject to evil and suffering and death, all of these things introduced by the fall. Paul says it doesn't stop there. The fall actually affects the entire created order. I'll read it to you. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 24. Um, for I consider that, the, for I, this is Paul writing to the church at Rome. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Here it is. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now. So Paul is saying the fall is not just about Adam and Eve. It is. The entire world is a mess as a result of that action. And that's actually an important thing to consider because it is true that human, that evil is a result of the misuse of will, right? A person, you know, you, 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 you exercise your will with the intention of causing suffering, that's evil. But that, and that is a result of the fall, right? But also, so is cancer and uh, trees falling on people that are unsuspecting and car accidents that have nothing to do with your fault. All of these things in the world, the world is a great, big, broken, fallen mess. Is that clear? And that is really, this is what the Bible says. You can deny it and you can shake your head, but if you want to understand how the Bible comes at this problem, and I think it does clearly and accurately, that is what Scripture claims. So I want to I share something with you. Um, this is actually a really great quote. It's on page 80. Um, This is actually, I shared this with Father Gritter a couple days ago. This is actually a creepy, I said it's a creepy, profound and unsettling quote. It's on page 80 in my Kindle. I hope it's on page 80 in the paper version as well. Lewis writes, the fall, listen to this. I'll read it to you twice. The fall was the emergence of a new kind of man. A new species. Listen, this is so crazy. The, the fall was the emergence of a new kind of man. A new species, never made by God, had sinned itself into existence. Isn't that crazy? Maybe not for you, but for me, that was 
really, really profound. The idea being, the important thing in all this is to recognize, and this is so pastoral and so important, that the world, the person, the people that we are now and the world that we live in now and who we are by nature now as fallen humans is not the way that God intended. Do you know, um, you know that John, when Jesus raises John the, um, Lazarus from the dead, you know that story in John's gospel? He goes to the, it's an interesting text because he goes, um, Jesus goes to, uh, so Jesus, uh, Jesus finds out that Lazarus is dying. They send, for, they send for him and he waits for two days. And then he goes, and then, and, and then they say, you know what, Jesus, you're, you're too late. Lazarus is already dead, which is strange because Lazarus, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die, and yet he, in a sense, let him. But this is where it gets really fascinating. Jesus goes to, La- to Lazarus' grave. Everybody's, the, the sisters are crying. Mary and Martha are crying. Lazarus is Jesus' friend, after all. And he gets to the tomb, and it's the shortest word in the entire Bible. It is the word... It's only one word in Greek. It's two words in English. Jesus wept. You know that? Okay? It is the shortest. Kaleio is the Greek word. It's only one word in Greek. Now, what does that mean? Now, people oftentimes hear that as Jesus goes to the funeral of his friend and he's, he's crying, like in sympathy or in, like anybody would cry at a funeral, right? Sad, lonely, um, going to miss that person. This is unfair. That's what people read that word, Jesus wept. The word there actually is a word, it's got lots of nuance to it. It, There's no word to really capture it in in English, but the Greek is a mixture of sadness and upsetness and sympathy and anger. Why is Jesus angry? Why is Jesus angry? What's he angry at? Is he angry at Lazarus? We We weren't supposed to die. It's the same thing when God says to Adam, Adam, who told you you were naked? Did you really? And now Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb, and this is word kaleio. It's a word Tim Keller said in a sermon once. It's the same word that an animal makes when you, uh, like a, a, a war horse makes when you prod it. It's like a grunt. Uh, it's a strong word that Jesus wept. He's not weeping. He's not just crying like we would cry at a wedding. He's angry. He's angry at the fact that we live, that we have gotten ourselves into the mess we're in. Is that, he's, he's, and actually, I would say, he is angry at the consequences that befall on his people. Kind of like when your kids get involved in something and you go, oh, did you really do that? And they maybe didn't quite know what they were getting into. Maybe you warned them and they didn't listen to you. You, you get how yeah, this works. But then you see how somebody actually bears a consequence of something which they've done or that something has been done to them and you think, oh, man. And you're angry, right? Does that make sense, everybody? Is this, any questions? Paul, you have a question? I just have a comment. Okay. People want to be in charge. If you want to be in charge. And, you know, God made us in his image. And God's in charge. And we're created in his image. And, you know, maybe we want to be like Yeah, that's a good point. Paul's point is we always want to be in charge. The fundamental sin, he says this on page... Um, on 70, the sin, the, the fundamental sin behind the fall, the fundamental sin behind all your sins and mine is fundamentally pride. And what that means is not arrogance and not I'm better than you are, not that kind of pride, uh, but pride which says, I know better, right? 
That's what Adam and Eve did. I know better. And not only did they know better, they didn't want to have to be beholden to God because they wanted to have control. Here's the great irony of the Christian life. We want control, but yet we never actually get it. But we have a God that has it who offers us salvation and freedom and joy in him, and we, and we, refused, we, we were hesitant to take it. Even though, no matter how much control we try to exert, no matter how much pride and, and things we try to do to, to protect ourselves and make our lives as easy and simple as possible, we can never actually get there. So the, so the fall is a radical alteration of the constitution of man, and it is a radical change in the very nature of creation itself. And Lewis ends up on page 86, and we'll get to some questions this, the thesis of this chapter, chapter 5, read it again, by the way. There's a lot in there, and it's really profound. The thesis of this chapter is simply that man as a species spoiled himself, and that good to be, and that good to us in our present sense must therefore mean primarily be remedial or corrective. That's important. In other words, you will never understand suffering. You'll never understand the biblical view of suffering. You'll never understand Christianity, frankly, until you first get the premise of the whole thing, which is that we are not, we are not the way God designed us to live, and we're also, neither is the world we live in, right? Here's the interesting thing. Jesus tells us that when, when he, and this is not in Lewis's book, but we're coming up on Easter, right? Uh, what, do you know what Easter promises us? Easter promises us resurrection. When Christ returns, that we will be raised from the dead, resurrected, reformed to, a, I would argue, a pre-fallen state, whatever that is. Uh, okay, so at the resurrection, when Christ returns, he conquers death once and for all. We are restored to a pre-fallen state, and we live with him forever in a real physical place called what? Eden. <laughs> if you read the, book, read the book of Revelation at the very end, you know, the Bible is a great big circle. It starts off in Eden, and then there's the fall, and all the junk that goes on in human experience. Christ comes, saves us, resurrects, is himself resurrected, and says, when I come back, which could be any moment, I'm going to put this, I'm going to fix this once and for all. And if you read the book of Revelation at the end, it's basically a re, retelling of Eden. Heaven is a physical place. It's not floating around in clouds all day long. John's got, John has a vision of heaven, and he describes it in physical terms, right? It was like, the streets are like glass. It's like this. It's all metaphor because you can't describe it in human language. But the idea being that what Christianity is all about is Christ bringing us back to heaven. Did I lose you? Okay, so a um, couple questions here. Uh, any comments or observations or anything before we move on? Is this too heavy? Okay, I hope it's not, I hope it's nothing, it might be new a little bit, but I hope it's not too, too new for you. So here's, here's question number one. Yes? Does that mean that um, Christ could come and start? Do you think he's waiting for us to, obviously the world keeps getting worse? Yeah, that's a, there's some, you know, there, there's somewhere, um, Somebody wants to Google it. Paul says somewhere, God is not slow as we count slowness, but he is patient waiting that more would repent. I don't have the citation off the top of my head, but the idea is that Christ is delaying his return so that more people will be saved. I think that's from 2 Peter. 
Okay, I, if somebody can look it up, that would be, if you could Google it, that'd be great. But that's actually the best I can do is that, that the reason Christ delays is that very reason. But let me also say this too, and I say this in funerals, usually when I preach funeral sermons, Christ is going to return in your lifetime for you, right? By definition. <laughs> so everyone thinks it could be, and it may be, he might not come back for another 10,000 years. As far as you're concerned and I'm concerned, he will come back in my lifetime because once I'm dead, I am no longer in time. I would, this, this is a theory that I have, not just me, some of the church fathers believe that once you're dead, you are no longer in time, right? You're atemporal. You would be at the, at the resurrection, at the, sec, at the second coming immediately. Kind of, so. Second Peter, starting Second Peter, chapter three, verse eight and following. Okay. Okay. Good question. Any other questions? Yes, Marilyn? If, if God knows everything and he created us and we didn't turn out as, his, as he intended because he gave us free will, did right. he know that was going to happen? Presumably. At least he knew that, I mean, somebody, he makes, Lewis makes the point, I think it was Lewis, or somebody I just read said, it must have been Lewis, uh, says that uh, the Lord saw the cross at the moment of creation. Yeah. But is it, I don't think it's in scripture anywhere. I mean, I can't think of anything off, off the top of my head. Yeah, before the, fa I mean, yeah. So, but, but again, this is where it gets tricky too. You've got to be really careful. This is why the whole Calvinism, Arminianism argument to me is just stupid because predestination and election is just stupid. Not stupid, but it's, for us it's stupid because God is God. He's outside of time. I am, I am a man in time. All I can even conceive of is being in time, past, present, and future. God is not, right? God is, at the, God is right now, this is almost an illogical thing to say, but God is right now at my birth, my death, right now in my present, whatever time it is, and the resurrection, he just sees it all at one once, you know? So you say God does something pre this, or I wouldn't even say that God has foreknowledge. I just say God just knows everything all at once. Kind of like I always describe it as a number line. Here's the beginning of creation. Here's the end. We're somewhere on that number line, and God is above the thing looking down at the whole thing at once. Is that clear? He's not in time. That's a big, big, he can, he can intersect with time. He does at the altar, in the Eucharist, all sorts of places, but he's not bound by it. If that's too heady, don't sweat it, but it's good stuff. I did a lot of reading of Aquinas when I was in grad school, in case you can't tell. Uh, this is, and actually, here's, Marilyn, here's to, your, here's to your point. Question number two, um, if this is working. Uh-oh, hang on a minute. Um, okay. If, if God saw it coming, why didn't he stop the fall? This, right, the first fall. Right, again, again, if... It's an infinite, it's an infinite regress, right? It's gonna, somewhere along the line, if he's gonna allow free will, he has to allow us to, to reject him. So even if, even, if, even if Adam and Eve, even if he'd prevented their free will in that moment, and God can... But again, like we talked about a few chapters ago, if God is repeatedly inter interacting with suspending natural law, then natural law becomes meaningless, right? Is that clear? All right, question number three. What is the root cause of all sin? Pride, right? Started with the garden, started with anything. Do you, do you think that's true? 
Do you? Can you give me an example of a, let me, let me think about something. Um, how would um, Avenatti, what's he, he got busted for something, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's an example of, that's kind of an easy one. That's an example of pride. But can you think of, uh, can you think of why, um, give, me a, give me a sin, give me a sin, any sin, and we'll see if we can dissect how it's prideful. Murder, why is murder, why is murder prideful? You're taking, you're, right, you're taking the place of God, right? Now, I w- that's another, this is another whole kettle of fish. I do believe that human beings have the right to self-defense. I, murder is, um, the, the, the commandment says, thou shalt do no murder. Murder is killing, some, it's evil. It, it is taking the life of a human being with the intention of, uh, of, for nefarious reasons, okay? But if, I would argue, and again, people differ on this, so it's a, it's a good discussion to have, I think, I would argue that taking a, a, a human being, taking another human being's life to protect innocent people is justified. People argue this, and I'm not going to, people vary on this, and I, I respect that. But my personal opinion is that uh, the Bible does not prohibit killing at all. It just prohibits murder. Is that, is that okay? And the reason is, if you are murdering somebody, you are assuming, you are assuming a godlike power over them. If you are protecting innocent life, you are doing what God has told you to do. Does that mean, it's, two different, it's a subtle nuance. And then just war theory and all that, but uh, that's not what we're here to talk about today. But it's a good discussion. Anything else? Anybody have another, another question, Marilyn? Mm-hmm. But rather than, than pride, isn't it really the desire to have control? Yeah, that's what pride is. Pride is the desire to have control. The biblical understanding of pride is wanting to be, like, like, like the Satan says to Eve, you will be like God. You aren't going to need the old man anymore, right? I mean, think about, it, think about it in your own life. How many of you have life insurance policies? I do, right? I want to care for my kids in case I get whacked on any of boulevard someday or something. Who knows? Could happen driving around this town, man. <laughs> um, but we all, we all do things in our lives to try to create control and structure. It's, it's what we do. To some degree, that's responsible. But, you know, it does... This is, this is the whole trick, right? When does that desire to be controlling kind of get to the point of trying to play God? That's a very good question. That's a pastoral. And I don't think it's a hard and fast answer for every person, but it is a good pastoral, a good pastoral question. Um, I would think so. Yeah, I think it really depends on, I mean, you know, you can be, you can be, yes, I think so, when it becomes the driving force. And C.S. Lewis somewhere, I think it's in the screw tape letter, says, uh, you know, people, the, 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 the best way for someone to handle this is do the best you can do in any circumstance that comes at you. Do the best you can do, ask the Lord for guidance, and go to bed. <laughs> Seriously, like, uh, it's actually screw tape telling Wormwood he says, Wormwood, is, we should do a study on this book some year. It's really great. Uh, Wormwood is a demon tempting the human patient. And the, and the senior demon says to the junior demon, here's some advice, Wormwood. Never let that human realize this important thing. Never let, him, never let it occur to him that he should do the best he can do with what he's got. Put, pray to the Lord and ask him for guidance. And then put the matter to bed and go to sleep. That's just great advice. Because you can't, a lot of, and the reality is, we try to exert control on all these things, and, and we just don't have a lot, right? Fundamentally, we don't have any, but that's another matter. This last quote, uh, the last question, 
Um, and we're going to do chapters 5, 6, and 7 tonight. 6 and 7 we're going to go through quickly. Um, but I do want to, I thought this was profound. And if you don't, um, I'm sorry about that, but I thought it was really cool. Um, when Lewis says the fall was an emergence of a new kind of man, I think that's just, maybe it's just me. Does that strike you as profound or not? Um, Lewis says that the fall was the emergence of a new kind of man, a new species never made by God, had sent itself into existence. Isn't that, isn't that I don't know, that really struck me as uh, just profound. And also, I do think, let me, let me say this too, I think you will be, if you come to recognizing that you're a fallen person, doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't even mean you're bad, right? It does mean you're fallen. And you will be able to be a lot more patient with other people when you recognize your own fallenness, right? There, but by the grace of God go I. And you'll learn to be a lot more understanding of when you really blow it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like when you realize that, the, you know, you recognize that you're willing to admit you're a sinner, that's liberating. It doesn't sound, most people don't hear, most people hear it as condemning. On the contrary, it's liberating. If it's true, it's liberating to acknowledge that you're fallen and you can't get up. Because what it means is, Lord, I need you to help me. And that's where God does his work. Is that clear? Does that sound, is that like a different way to hear this whole sin business? A lot of people hear sin as, which is probably why I don't hear it very frequently anymore. They hear it as condemning. I don't mean it that way at all. I hear it as an honest assessment of certainly my own heart and the human heart in general. So, anything? Bruce, you got something for me? Nope. Okay. Um, let's move on to chapter, uh, where are we here now? Chapter six, human pain. Okay. This is interesting. Human pain. Um, Lewis says, we live in a fallen world where pain is inevitable because man has free will to hurt each other. So pain is a result of the fall, right? It's a result of the fall either in something inanimate like cancer or whatever, something like a tree falling on a puppy, I don't know. <laughs> That's suffering, right? But it, and all, that suffer, all suffering is a result of the fall, okay? Evil is a result of the misuse of, of human will or angelic will, okay? So what he would say uh, on page, page uh, 87... He says here, oh boy, I lost my spot. When souls become wicked, they will certainly use this possibility to hurt one another. And perhaps this accounts for four-fifths of the suffering of men. It is men, not God, who have produced racks, whips, prisons, slavery, guns, bayonets, and bombs. I think that's, I think that's a large part of this whole question. People blame God for suffering most suffering, at least in my life, has been the result of, been the consequence of somebody else or me making a decision to hurt, do something stupid, okay? Or someone doing something sinful, which then impacts me. It's not God's fault. On the contrary, God gave them, them and me the ability to make those decisions. They've, they've decided poorly, as I do. You guys sleepy? How come? Okay. Uh, so here's it. So the solution, uh, he says, the solution for the, create, the created, meaning us, it is to submit to the creator. If God, here's the question. If God knows what he's doing, right? If God is good and he knows what he's doing and he desires our happiness, all of which are true biblically, right? In, in Genesis chapter two, then the whole, the whole part, the whole point of life, the meaning of life is, is this is good in this chapter. The whole meaning of life is simple. It is surrendering our own pride 
and giving it to the Lord. If God is good, which the Bible claims, and he desires our uh, growth and, and love and joy, not always happiness, but he desires us to be at peace, right? Then if those two things are true, and, and as a result of the fall and our own sin, we, are, we create our own problems, the whole Christian life is about learning to put those things aside and surrender our lives to, back to the Lord. The, the secret to human joy and flourishing is surrender to God. Do you believe that to be true? Anybody I've known has ever been at peace has done that. Anybody, anybody here been with somebody as they were dying? At some point when they finally realized, all right, the, 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 the clock's ticking and it's only a matter of time, you are forced, you're forced to do what? Do one of two things. Either get really pissed and bitter. That doesn't happen that frequently, actually. Or you, just, or you are forced to do what? Surrender. And that's when you see the peace which passes all understanding. I've seen it, I can't tell you how many times. So, the whole key, so what, what he's saying then is, um, this is what Lewis is saying, that the whole, the whole sense of life, the whole purpose of life then, is to die daily to self, to be continually putting aside our ways and living for God. It's a, it is a continual process and struggle. It's called the Christian walk, right? Of becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like our own selves. And what he says here, this is actually a profound one too, on page 91. He says, the human spirit will not even begin to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. I hope you see where this is going, right? So in other words, anybody here, um, how many, we all know people that everybody says, man, that guy's got it made. Look at all the fun. He, look at, he, he, that guy's not a care in the world, man. All the money, you know, all the, you know and we, we admire people that have everything going on, right? And we, we see them and we think they're, they're flourishing and they're happy and they're joyful. And then we see something happen to that person. I've seen this many times where the bottom falls out, right? And then you're left with one of two decisions. Either I'm going to surrender to God or I'm going to fight him. He says here, the human spirit will not even begin to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be going well with it. We will, not, we will not begin to surrender our own desires for the way we live until we realize that we don't have any control. Do you think that's true? I, uh, and this is actually, I think, this has been the, I hope you've kind of picked up on this in my preaching over Lent, that Lent has been all about how to suffer well. The idea being that Lent is all about trying to surrender our self-will, right, to God. Anybody have any comments on that? Does that make any sense to you? Bruce. Oh, no, Bruce, uh, Bruce Barquette, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you started in the center and the bar is set so high. Yes. That's right, right. That's right. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That's, that's a good point. So Bruce's point is we are always going to be sinners, which is true. The Lord forgives them because he pays for those sins on the cross. That's, we're getting to that on Good Friday and all that. But what I'm trying to, what Lewis's point, and I think he's onto something here, is that as long as the human heart is self-satisfied, we will never, self, we'll never surrender. He, I'll read it again. The human spirit will not even begin to, tr to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. What do you think, Alan? Well, what came to my mind was, uh, I think we talked a little bit about this, the church in Africa, 
Right. On how some of the uh, religions take it off. Yes, Anglicans are. In those places, people have come to the conclusion that they are in a bad state and they don't have control. And the Western, in contrast, in the Western world where we are, we all feel nice and comfy. And right, that's exactly nice. right. And so we're all very guarded here in our Alan's, Alan's point is uh, that in, in Africa and other, even parts in the US, right, but in Africa, particularly in, in China too, for that matter. Um, that those, the, the, the shortness of life and the lack of control that they have is salient to them. I mean, it's day-to-day -day existence, right? So they are, the, the sen they, they, don't have, they don't have the option of not self-surrendering, right? They're forced to. And I think that's actually the point of the book, the, this point of this chapter of, of um, chapter six, is that this idea of suffering actually reminds us that we don't have a whole lot of control. Bruce, you had another comment, or what do you think? I don't know anything about that. I don't. Um, I, I can only tell you what I, I know anything about that. But the uh, uh, I can tell you, Bishop Magangani, when he was here, he's the bishop of um, um, Northern Malawi. He would say that the people there are just poor, and that's what drives most of them to faith. I mean, they're just living in. There's there's no there is no self delusion, you might say, of 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 confident of of control. And, and again, he says right here, um, we will not repent if things are, are, we will not repent if things are going well. And I, I mean, I see this so many times, pastor, I see this so many times of people, when things go, when the bottom falls out, uh, and it can be anything, right? They have one of two options. They can say, I need to make a change, or at, least, at the very least, they realize, I have very little control over my life. In fact, you have very little, I didn't put the breath in my own lungs this morning. Anybody here put the breath in their own lungs this morning? No. So none of us really has a whole lot of control over anything. And to live, to live in that sort of self-surrender with God, I think, is the key. Yes? Well, that's too bad. I mean, I've, I've seen, she, she was making the comment that she knew a woman who came to church when she had cancer. What she wanted was to be healed, right? And she was. Um, well, that's all, you know, Jesus talks about that in scripture, right? The people that are, there's 10 lepers who are healed and only one comes back and wants to follow him. The rest of the nine, she says, where's the rest of them? I don't know. So she's in good company, <laughs> that woman. Yes. But isn't that what he's saying? He's saying when yes. everything is going well, we forget about God. Of course, that's exactly what he's saying. And, and, I, and we don't, we don't, we only think about God when we say, "Oh God, why did this happen to me?" Right. It's exactly right. And, and I, but, but, but you can see, I would say this too. I think you're on with that, Marilyn. That we we forget about God until times of suffering. Not only, but large sometimes. Um, that suffering can be a real opportunity for you to grow in your faith. It is, certainly, you're, you will grow in your faith and you will grow in your trust in God through suffering. I guarantee it, right? And anybody 
Disagree? I mean, walk, long walks on the beach, looking at the sunset, may give you a sense of the profound and a sense of God's omnipresence and beauty of the nature and all that stuff. That's good. But if you really want to get, really want to grow in your faith, you have to suffer well and, and realize that this is, we live in a fallen world. This is what happens. I've tried to rely on myself and Lord, I have to just give it to you. That is where God does his really amazing transformational work. Um, so anyway, uh, yes, Stacy. The part about coming to suffering is when you see you're weak, and then my analogy is that God can step in and be strong. That's right. Um, and people can see it then, but like Marilyn was saying, and he <coughs> says it later in the book, some people it's the last resort. You know, they'll do anything before they ask God for help. That's, That's right. Resort. And then once they've got their problem solved, then they move on and forget they it do. again. It's, they do. It is, it is human nature. It is human nature. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned this in my sermon on Sunday, too. Uh, this just popped into my brain. You know, Jacob, who is the uh, progenitor of the nation of Israel, right? He's the, the, the guy who has the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. The word uh, Jacob wrestles with God, literally, and uh, fights with him. You know, and they're duking it out. And God finally knocks him on his butt and says, all right, kid, you're you going to let me, like, drive the bus here now? And, of course, Jacob, I didn't say it quite like that, but... Basically, God wrestles with, Jacob wrestles with God. God wins, because he always does. And the fascinating thing is God changes Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. And the name Israel means the guy who wrestles with God. That's profound, because that, because that means that God's people, whether it's the Jews or you, are the people that wrestle with God, Right? In other words, that God is constantly trying to remind you, look, I got this, man. You can try and you can, you should do the best you can do, but I got this already. So if you just calm down and let me work through you and on you and with you and your life, I got this one, God is saying. But like Marilyn's saying, we all want to just, we want to control it, right? Because, and the reason we want to control it is fundamentally we doubt that God's really got to keep his word. That's what I think. Yeah, did you have a comment, Nancy? The worst stories for me to hear is to have somebody that you know in church who are very good Christians and something really terrible happens to them and they reject God and don't come back to the church. It's just this, it's just a horrible thing that happened. So what is going on there? I don't know. That's a good question. So Nancy's question was if somebody is in church and they suffer and they reject God, I've, I've never actually seen that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I've never actually seen it. Um, I was thinking, for instance, the yeah. death of a child. Something just cataclysmic. Yeah, I, you know, that's a good, I think that's just, that's a pastoral matter. I mean, I think two things. First of all, you never want to say this to somebody who's in the middle of a suffering, <laughs> is in the middle of a struggle. This is, this is right now, uh, this is ammunition for you to understand so that when things do go wrong, you can lean back and go, okay, I remember what we talked about, right? I would never, I would never talk this way to a group of grieving widows. Or never, because it would, the, the emotion is so raw and there's so much pain there. It's just, it's going to be, it's going to sound cruel, actually. I do think, though, that if you, in the bigger picture, and this is why I'm trying to equip you guys with this, with this idea here, so that you can, be, you can minister to other people, and even in your own life, when suffering occurs, you can remind people that that's where God does his work. It's not because God, God didn't cause the death of this person's child. It's living in a fallen world. It's actually... If you look at it, our fault of the fall, right? Collectively, anyway. 
God is now, God, but God can use these things to, to uh, reorient our own hearts towards him. Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, I, um, yeah. So, did somebody else have a comment? One, uh, one more quick thing. Um, uh, what, uh, he says here, what then can God, what then can God do in our interest but to make our own life less agreeable to us and take away, this is great, it's on page 95, and take away the plausible source of false happiness. In other words, here's something for you to chew on. Um, what, when God, God is continually trying to strip us of the things we place in our lives that are false gods. He's always trying to strip us of those things. And false gods can come in any size in any shape, in anything. A false God is something you rely upon for your happiness. That's not God. And we've all got them. Me too. I thought about it for a minute. In fact, I got a couple. <laughs> and God is always trying to get, get us away from those things, not because God's cruel. On the contrary, it's because God loves us and he knows those things are false and they can't actually satisfy. So is this too heady? Okay. It's a lot of, go back and reread five and six. There's a lot of good meat in there, and I'm, just, I'm really just kind of um, going at the surface here. And then, um, and then I'll give you one more quote, and then we'll have some questions, and we'll wrap up in five minutes. Uh, page 117, uh, um, well, 115 and 117, Lewis says, if tribulation is a necessary element in redemption, this is great, this is a great quote, if tribulation, suffering, is a necessary element in redemption, we must anticipate that it will never cease till God sees the world to be either redeemed or no longer redeemable. In other words, God is continually trying to remove the false gods from our own hearts and trying to redeem the world, which involves suffering. And then page 117, our Father refreshes, refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, like hotels, um, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. That's a great quote. That's refrigerator magnet theology right there, man. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends. Life is an all-suffering, but he will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Any questions? You want to do questions or you guys want to wrap up? Um, Susan. Susan. Okay. The reason people get cancer or anything right. is because we had the fall, and so then we were no longer perfect people, so we're not perfect anymore. Then we get to be. Well, that's right. It's not, and it's, yeah, it's not even, yeah, that's a good, I'm glad you asked that. So Susan's question was with cancer and car accidents and things like that. Is that a result of the fall? The answer is yes. I'm not saying that if you get cancer, it's God's punishment. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, there was no sickness, there was no cancer, there, were, there was no evil, there was no suffering, right? The fall introduces that entire foreign element into the human existence. Yeah, that's so, I'm glad you asked that question, because I don't... Because the world's a broken mess, right? It ha, it's not, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. I preach this at funerals, Every time, you know, there's a casket there. And I'll say, this is not the way that God intended this to be. If, there, if you, you know, if you're at a funeral, you will, if you dig down a little bit, 
you'll find anger. You will, and you should. That's because Jesus did. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's profound. And the point being that we live, you, you will cut yourself some slack and you'll cut other people some slack too. And, you'll, and the world will make more sense to you if you just get that one fact. We li- the world we live in is not the one that God designed us to live in. It's not. My body that I have, which is getting older and, and everybody here is aging and got medical things going on and family problems and all the whole rest of it, that's not the way God intended us to live. I, I preached about this a couple of weeks ago, that we're always appealing to the memory of Eden. We do it as a species. So, good point. Um, okay, one more quick one. Uh, Lewis writes, and then this is a question here. Um, it's question number two. Uh, right here. Lewis writes, quote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. That's another good quote. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Do you think he's right? Do you think he's right, John? Oh, it's uh, this paper that went out. I'm sorry. They're up here. That question right there. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. it It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Do you think he's right? I do. Do you? Okay, well, we're done. Anything else? Uh, did you learn anything today? Okay, next week we're going to cover the rest of the book and then we'll be done. I told you four sessions and I'm going to keep you to it. So uh, sorry this has been kind of heady, but I hope you've gotten something out of it. I would encourage you to go back and reread six, uh, five and six again. There's a lot of good meat in there. And uh, if you would please help clean up before you go, that would be very much appreciated. And then we're going to close in prayer, shall we? All right, the Lord be with you. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which uh, challenges us, which actually challenges and comforts us and helps us to see the world around us through your lens and the, and the lens that which you created us to live. Lord, help us to realize this world is not the way it's supposed to be, that you have given us Jesus to die for our sins and to promise us that he will restore it. In his name we pray. Amen.